Hello, folks. It's Audrey, your host, and you're listening to Why We Do the Work. As always, I would like to thank Beyond Toxics for helping this podcast happen. And of course, my podcast partner, Crystal. Also, you can see all the amazing work that our team does on at beyondtoxics.org. And you can reach me at aab at beyondtoxics.org. Another quick bit of info for you all is that we are working on getting these episodes transcribed. Crystal and I were talking about it, and we realized that we have unintentionally not made the show accessible to everyone, this being folks who have hearing impairments of some sort. Why We Do the Work is a podcast where you don't have to feel alone in the madness that is cancer, and everyone should have access to its material. So transcriptions are coming your way. Also, as a reminder, this podcast is about cancer. So if cancer triggers you, please take care of yourself. The last episode was pretty heavy. Lori joined me to chat about some of the vast residual that is left behind after childhood cancer. Her son, Simon, who shared the same type of cancer with my daughter, Zion, that is Hodgkin's lymphoma, is having a hard time getting back to normal, air quotes. So us as his family are striving and working really hard to help him enjoy life again. So keep him in your thoughts. Joining me on the show today are two of my Airbuster teammates, Mason Levitt, BT's GIS and Spatial Data Coordinator, and Alyssa Ruida, BT's EJ Project Organizer. And the name Airbusters came about because we were out and uh, we were taking some photos of our work as we were out doing some some uh, air quality monitoring. And I took this picture of us and I was like, oh, my God, we're Airbusters. So we're Airbusters. We're the air quality team and we're out here busting air. So that's where the name Airbusters came from. And you all met. Um, you all met the other Airbusters a couple episodes ago with Paige Hopkins and Meet Panchal. And we are sad to say that Meet is no longer with BT. He's just had a new season in his life. So Meet, you will be missed. And happy endeavors to you always from the BT staff and especially the Airbusters. So Mason, how are things going since you were last on the show? They're going pretty good. And I'm excited that you have invited me back. Yeah, me too. Everybody, we were at a retreat this past week earlier this week, and we got to know each other in a little bit different way. I already loved Mason, but just seeing him in just a regular environment along with the rest of the staff and Alyssa getting to know her, you know, it's it's great. So I'm happy that you're here, Mason. And Alyssa, thank you so much for coming as well. So Alyssa, were you originally from Florida or Las Vegas? I can't remember which which one. Yes. So I was born in Miami, Florida. Um, I lived there and was raised there for about seven years. And then I moved to Las Vegas where I lived for about 11. And then I, the age of 18, I moved out to Oregon. And is this where you went to school? Did you go to U of O? I did. I went to the University of Oregon. Oh, nice. And I know that your major is marine biology. So how did you end up working with us over in BT? How did you end up at EJ nonprofit work? Yeah. So when I was in high school, I... I'd already known that I was I was pretty good at talking to people and I very much enjoyed connecting with people. But then in my U.S. government class, we were given an assignment to go volunteer at a political campaign. 
So that's, you know, canvassing, um, phone banking. And so we were tasked with 10 hours in about a month. And I stayed on to do like, I think it was like 50 hours in a month or something like that. Um, Because I I received a fellowship. So they also thankfully paid me to do that. Um, And I just very much enjoyed it. I, the first week, they just saw how passionate I was about canvassing um, and phone banking. And I really did enjoy it because I was able to go out into my community and talk to pretty much my neighbors that I just would never talk to on a day-to-day basis because we're just at different paths in life. But I was able to hear what their everyday concerns are and get a glimpse of their everyday everyday lives. And I just really enjoyed that. And I noticed that a lot of the things that people are concerned with are different than the things that you know, kind of higher up politicians talk about. Mm-hmm. So I just, I really enjoyed seeing that kind of, um, that bridge or that that gap in, in knowledge. I'm kind of rambling. I'm sorry. That's okay. And this, yeah. the fellowship, was that when you were in Las Vegas or was that a fellowship here? In- that was in Las Vegas. So that was all in my high school career, which was all in Las Vegas. Oh, you were doing all that in high school? Yeah. That's that's when I knew I really, so I was already super interested in marine biology from a super young age, but I got involved in people work and just connecting with people and community organizing in high school. And I just always worked to bridge those two together because there is a really a a big bridge already between them, but I chose to to walk on it. I love that. And so do you think that living in Florida, do you think that that like sparked your curiosity to want to be a sea captain? <laughs> Most definitely. I would always go to the beach with my grandmother and she was just, she was a beautiful woman. It was a beautiful place. And I just always enjoyed going, but I was also exposed to hurricanes and I was able to see that, you know, the ocean feeds hurricanes and then hurricanes feed the ocean to have like these huge humongous waves. And then they come in and I was able to see a really clear system in the environment and that the ocean is a big part of a lot of the systems that we have going on in the world. And if you, if that balance is thrown off, it just, it affects a lot of things, a lot of people and a lot of the things that we have in place. So that really drove my, my curiosity. And then just everything that I learned after that, I remember being in elementary school and I was reading this like little kids time magazine. Mm-hmm. And there was a whole section on how they had just recently discovered these new things in the midnight zone. And I was sitting there thinking, what? I'm in elementary school. It's 20, 2000 something. And you're just, Wait, yeah, I don't, what's a midnight zone? Oh, like the bottom, the bottom layer of the ocean, that's oh, all dark. Okay. So because it's a completely different ecosystem, there's all different types of organisms that have to survive mm-hmm. in that really dark, cold environment and they're just completely different than other things that we have like on land or even in other parts of the ocean so I was just so shocked at the amount of centuries that we've been on this earth we haven't gone that deep so I knew that there was a field in it and that's what got me involved in the science behind it that's so cool like I totally admire you uh, like wanting to be out on the ocean like that because as much as I love seeing it and get myself distracted on TikTok looking at killer whales and learning that dolphins are really not that cool um, I, you know, I'm like, I admire that about you because I would love to be comfortable in the ocean like that. I want to go tropical somewhere, but I would love to be comfortable. Most definitely. Yeah, Oregon is a big shift because it's, it's the dark, cold water. I do hope to make it to the tropical waters as well. Um, but that's the thing. I mean, I am still very uncomfortable, but I just know you have to lean into that discomfort to really open your mind sometimes. And and that's what I love about it. It's it's 
it's beautiful but so scary at the same time I just it's a whole swirl of emotions and and things so that's why I really love it that's great thank you for sharing all that um, Thank you for asking. Yeah, I think it's awesome. So you and I both wrote some testimony for Senate Bill 546, which is a toxic-free cosmetics bill. And what this bill would do is it would require the OHA to adopt and maintain a list of designated high-priority chemicals of concern used in cosmetic products and to periodically review and revise that list. So in your testimony, you mentioned that your two younger sisters are now at the age where they ask for cosmetics. And as a strong supporter of this bill, has working in the EJ realm amplified your concerns for the health impacts of your siblings? Like, does that drive, is that part of something that drives your work? Oh, most definitely. I wouldn't say that it necessarily amplified my concerns because I am already off the charts concerned about <laughs> everything involved in their lives. Just Aww. school, um, the environment, the food they eat, the clothes that they just everything in their life is concerning to me. But now working in this EJ field, I see specific examples of and I see things that people are trying to combat. You know, why are these toxic chemicals in children's cosmetics? And so it's really helpful having that knowledge because I already thought, you know, this three dollar makeup that kind of smells like clay it can't it can't be great you know but then I was able to get informed through this organization through Beyond Toxics and all these other organizations and I see also the work that's being done and I can also um, be aware of some of the mitigating factors you know whether it be cosmetics okay you know purchase something that's maybe a little bit more expensive or do the research on the products maybe because um, you know, it's something that's going to go on their face, whether it's this gas stove, you know, there are mitigate, you know, things that you can do to mitigate um, exposures or um, kind of threats to your health. Yeah. So you, so working in this environment, working in this realm, really, really not that it amplifies um, your concern about your sisters, but it makes you more aware of what could be happening with them. Let's bring the conversation to air quality real quick. So we're going to be talking about air quality today, particularly gas stoves and ranges. The Airbusters conducted a study of the dangers of being exposed to air quotes natural gas in your home. And there was a webinar that BT hosted. And there was also a report that was written, which, by the way, you all, that report is outstanding. I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh man, I know the people that wrote this. Like, this is amazing. So, that, I mean, that's awesome that you all were doing that, that you wrote that report. I mean, that That's like, be proud of yourselves because that was really awesome. You did a great job. Um, so Mason, what did we use to capture and collect all the data that you used to write that report? Tell me just a little bit about the report. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so we, you know, have known for a long time um, through science about what sort of chemicals are in natural gas and what happens when natural gas is burned and the different pollutants it forms. And so we did a little bit of research on different pieces of commercial air quality equipment that could either visualize these things or measure their concentrations in air um, and brought them to 13 people's houses. The two pieces of equipment we used was one what's called a forward-looking infrared camera 
or FLIR for short. You'll be hearing us say that a lot today. Um, and this camera can visualize hydrocarbons, um, which are a fossil fuel. Methane is probably the one that you all most might be familiar with, and it comprises 85 to 95% of natural gas. It also measures volatile organic compounds, which we'll get into in just a little bit. And then we brought a second piece of equipment called a flow to air quality monitor. The FLIR camera shows us the pollution, um, but it doesn't tell us how much is in the air. And so we used a flow to air quality monitor to measure the concentration of nitrogen dioxide, one of the most famous pollutants of gas stoves. That's probably all one you all have heard in the news about causing 12.7% of childhood asthma. And then it also measures volatile organic compounds, which the camera sees. Awesome. You know, it's really, I don't know, it's really, really super progressive that we're we're doing this in Eugene. I don't know how many people go flaring around. I, I don't know, but I think it's awesome that we were able to do that and do it in our community. So, Mason, do you think that the information about how dangerous gas appliances are in your home is readily available? Like, can somebody just, somebody that's not a scientific person, they're like, oh, I wonder what gas is doing. Do you think they can find that easily? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot more um, popular education and media on it in the last two years. Um, but even then, I would say a lot of that is focused on nitrogen dioxide, which is only one of the pollutants that I think we should be concerned about. Mm -hmm. What comes to mind is, is I sort of think about a pharmaceutical commercial, right? And if you remember in those commercials, they tell you about all the potential health benefits that you can get from taking a pharmaceutical pill, and then they go over all of the potential <laughs> side effects that you yeah. might have and experience as a result of taking this. And so when I think about like that type of readily available information, I, I just don't think that gas stoves are are as available or as publicized to the public um, when there are advertisements for natural gas or natural gas appliances. There are no warnings about the myriad of pollutants that they produce and the possible risks and dangers they pose to people of all ages and households. Do you know if we measure indoor air quality here in the United States? Do we, are we like, let's, let's go see what's going on in this house. Do we, do we do that? Is it? Like no, it's, it's not common at all. I mean, occasionally a scientist is, is very interested in, in looking at the effects of gas stoves or other items in our house. And then they go and measure that. But, um, we regulate outdoor air quality in the United States um, through the Cleaner Air Act. It measures and regulates six criteria air pollutants. Mm -hmm. um, nitrogen dioxide is one of those. Um, in the 1970s, we were actually super close to regulating indoor air quality. Um, but the American Gas Association, which is an industry group um, for natural gas companies, um, really did not like that proposal and did a lot to fight back on it. And they used tactics similar to uh, cigarette companies when cigarettes came under scrutiny and really um, tried to debase the science and um, attack the uh, credibility of scientists who are doing research in this area. And because of that, we actually do not regulate indoor air wow. quality at all in the United States. So crazy to me. I mean, that's why this air busting that we're doing is so important to bring knowledge because now we have this webinar, we have this report, and I think that that is something that folks can turn to and be like, oh, wow, I didn't know that it was that bad or that there's even a difference between gases. Um, 
you know, when you think about gas, you're just thinking about gas, a normal person, you're, you're thinking about like gas in your car, you're thinking about your propane gas, you're not thinking about necessarily your oven and, and stuff like that. You're just, I don't know, you're just not. So we don't measure indoor quality, but we do measure outdoor quality. And do you know, like, can you rattle off like some of the some of the levels of exposure that the World Health Organization deem hazardous? Like, like, is there a number level that you can can you can tell us? Yeah, so I'm actually going to use the EPA as an example here in the United States. Um, the EPA specifically prohibits um, that anyone is exposed to more than a hundred parts per billion or PPB of a nitrogen dioxide over the course of an hour. And we measured rates as high as 500 ppb in someone's house after turning on their burner for five minutes and preheating their gas oven to 350 degrees, which I will note is short of cooking a meal, which often involves multiple burners, heating the oven to a higher temperature, and definitely for a longer period of time than five minutes. Imagine you're cooking a turkey or a cake or even a sheet pan, right? You all can picture that those numbers would get a lot higher. Yeah. That's so amazing. if a company did that and that were happening in the US, it would be illegal outdoors and the EPA would have to intervene or another air quality regulator to make sure that those numbers go down. But because we don't look at that inside, mm -hmm. it's technically legal. Isn't that maddening? Yeah, it's crazy. It's I, I mean, even just eight months ago, I, I moved into a house with gas appliances and I was just so excited because I had been led to believe that they're the epitome of, you know, the culinary experience. And I'm I'm from a family of cooks and, and we all like to brag about our cooking and, and show off. And so I was really excited to be able to brag about that. And then, you know, four or five months later, I wrote this report and I cannot wait till I don't have a gas stove in my house. Oh man, I know it. I know it. Um, Alyssa, could you share some of the dangers and health impacts of having gas appliances in your home? Yeah. So gas appliances expose us to nitrogen dioxide, um, carbon monoxide, particulate matter of different sizes, 2.5 microns and 10 microns. And those are linked to respiratory issues and cardiovascular issues, whether it be immediate responses or long-term chronic responses in your body. We are also exposed to volatile organic compounds. And within those, many of them can be carcinogenic, um, such as benzene, ethane, butane, and formaldehyde. So those have been linked to different types of cancers within the body and um, uh, organ malfunctions. Yeah. And what's interesting is, is like benzene, for example, there's like no matter how low you're exposed to benzene, it accumulates in your body over time. So there's really no safe level for us to be exposed to that carcinogen. And it even emits from gas stoves while they're off. Yeah. That's a question we're going to get into in a little bit, because that's super scary, super duper scary. Um, so Alyssa, you said VOCs. Now, are, are all gases bad? Like, is it just the VOCs? Are we looking at gas and we're like, oh, you're all bad? Or is there any part of it that's good? I wouldn't necessarily say that parts of it are good, but some parts of it just aren't as bad or as we don't get as much of a response within our body to them. 
but they're yeah a lot of the VOCs are known to be linked to either cancers or other respiratory issues or cardiovascular issues we just get responses within our body so all bad <laughs> yeah and all of them actually break down when exposed to sunlight and heat and the elements they break down to what's called ground level ozone ozone is great for us in the atmosphere because it protects us from uv radiation but when it's at the ground level and we're inhaling it it's known to cause respiratory illness um, and exacerbate asthma and it's actually um, one of the six air pollutants regulated by the cleaner air act outdoors along with nitrogen dioxide Let's get back to the flare camera and the lack of indoor measurements of air quality. Um, and this is for you, Mason. You explain to us um, what the World Health Organization considers hazardous for the measurements of outdoor air quality. What are some of the levels you found in the participants' home? You said that there was 500 something. What it was that the highest? Yeah, that one was the highest. Flow 2, the air quality monitor we used, is made by a company called Plume Labs based in France. And they created what's called an air quality index for these different uh, pollutants. And you all at home, uh, especially if you're on the West Coast, are familiar with air quality indexes. They quantify what levels um, pollutants are harmful at us. And so when there's wildfire season, we have an air quality index for PM 2.5, which is one of the primary concerning pollutants of wildfires. And so they created one um, for nitrogen dioxide, and that's what we used to look at different health impacts. Um, and Plume specifically referenced the World Health Organization when creating this index. And so at five of 13 homes, uh, there were levels of nitrogen dioxide that are known to be really difficult to vulnerable populations like kids, elderly, people of color who are disproportionately exposed to air pollution through our land management and city design planning in the United States, especially. And, you know, they're also just not good for healthy people when you're exposed to those levels over, over and over and over and over again for long periods of time. So those are known to contribute to respiratory illness over time. Three of 13 houses we went to reached levels of NO2 that everyone's likely to feel pretty gross when experiencing it. They might have difficulty breathing, get lightheaded, and it's just, we know that this is not good for anyone. And those are levels that um, are above the EPA measurement I was referring to earlier. And then one of the houses reached what's called, um, uh, according to Plume, an airpocalypse level. Um, and that's really high on the AQI, uh, so much so that if you're in that environment, you want to leave if you can um, and take protections against your health. And if you cannot leave, it's advised that you minimize all physical activities so that you're not breathing as much and breathing in as much of that pollution. Um, and this house, you know, in particular was an older home. It was constructed a long time ago before vents were mandated in Oregon. They don't have a vent above their gas stove and their kitchen was pretty small. So the air circulation isn't that great, meaning that if you're sitting in there and cooking, you know, the nitrogen dioxide just keeps building up and up and up. So I think this is a good place to talk about something that's super exciting that happened in Eugene. Um, in February of 2023, Eugene City Council voted yes for clean electric homes. This ordinance will ban new gas infrastructure and low-rise residential construction. Um, I wanted to mention that because 
during our flaring, I'm just going to keep calling it flaring. Everybody, we're talking about the flare camera. During our flaring, we had a couple of elected officials participate in this study. How do you think that that vote was impacted by what they discovered in their homes? Like, were they like, wow, this is crazy. I'm going to vote yes. Do you think that it impacted them at all? Yeah, I, I actually know it did. So the house I was just talking about that reached an apocalypse level was actually one of our city councilors here in Eugene. And when speaking to her, she saw the camera and she saw the footage. And I think at that moment, you know, she'd been pretty on the fence about whether or not to support this resolution. Um, she was concerned about the way the public would perceive it. But as soon as she saw that footage and the levels her house reached, I think she understood the importance of, of being a leader in our community and being willing to stick stick up for constituents and public health. And she knew that she had to do the hard thing. Um, even if it was scary, this was a moment for her to really show leadership in our community. And, and she stepped up and voted for that. And it was really phenomenal to see that. Yeah, that's amazing. Has it happened anywhere else? Do you do you all know if the if is if, is Eugene like the first on the list? We're the first in Oregon, actually. About 80-something communities in California have done it. I believe Seattle has done it. Um, and actually, just this week, New York State, the entire state, banned adding natural gas infrastructure to new buildings under 60 feet starting in 2026, I believe. And then in 2029, it will extend to all buildings. Oh, my lanta. That is amazing. <laughs> See, we're getting it out there. We are on the roster for fast forward moving action in busting air. We are doing it. But I just want to mention, we won't focus on a lot of it today, but one of the big motivations for doing this is, you know, to help get us off fossil fuels and to stop contributing to climate change, which affects people's health, homes, livelihoods in a, in a vast numbers of ways. And, you know, we're, while I, we're not focusing on that today, I think it's really important to mention. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, that, that FLIR camera footage is crazy. Um, when we first started working with the FLIR, it made me hyper aware of the dangers I could be exposing myself and my family to by having gas appliances. We had a conversation during one of our Airbuster meetings, and I shared with you all that I have gas appliances. And when I was growing up, much like you, Mason, when I was growing up, gas was where it was at. Like you were, you were at the top notch. If you had gas, we thought that it made our food, you know, cooked it more evenly. And, you know, we, we felt like we made it when we had gas, but you know, now that I'm aware of it, I called my landlady and I am going to say that she identifies as she, so I can call her landlady. I called her and I asked her to come out and check the stove. I wanted her to come smell what I was smelling. And I smelled it every single time I turned on my stove. And my family, like many others, they were oblivious to it because they don't flare. You know, they're not airbusters. So they're not they're they're not paying attention to what's what the smell is. And we discovered that our stove was from 1990. We've been cooking on the stove from 1990. So I let my landlady know that. She replaced the stove. I do personally have air purifiers in my house, which I think helped. I think they're continuing to help, not only with this, the gas that's in my house, but just with outside, with allergies and things like that. But everybody cannot afford air purifiers. So it's really important what we're doing, you know, especially in Oregon. 
we st it starts at home, right? So it's really important what we're doing. So I'm going to come back to you, Alyssa. And researchers have found that leaking unburned methane gas from stoves in the U.S. has a climate impact equal to 500,000 gas-powered cars. Do you know approximately about how many people in the U.S. have gas stoves? Yeah, according to the American Chemical Society, there are about more than 40 million stoves in the United States. 40 million? 40 million. Wow. And I, I'm, I'm one of those millions. I think I forgot to ask this. And I'm, I'm going to ask you, Alyssa, since we're in here with you, when we were doing the study, did were Mason said earlier in, in the beginning of the show that gas leaks even when the doors aren't open. So when we were flaring, did the, the flare camera, did it pick up all the VOCs that we're concerned about? And are we concerned about other gas appliances? In terms of VOCs, I would say that that's kind of a yes and no answer because the equipment that we have isn't able to differentiate between the VOCs that we captured. So our flow monitor tells us that VOCs went up, but it doesn't tell us specifically if it's formaldehyde or, or benzene or other types of VOCs. But we do know the FLIR camera's capabilities. According to the manufacturer, there's a list of VOCs that the FLIR camera can capture. And we also have um, past history done by other researchers of what VOCs are present when using a gas stove. So we can kind of cross-reference and say, well, if the FLIR camera picks up ethane, it's something that researchers have been able to determine is in natural gas stove usage. Then we can tell that, well, that's something that the camera is most likely picking up. But we, with our, with our equipment, we weren't able to differentiate between the VOCs. Wow. And Mason, are we concerned about other gas appliances or are we just concerned about stoves? I think we should be concerned about other gas appliances when thinking about the climate and things like that. And especially how efficient electric appliances have gotten with heat pumps um, and induction burners. Carbon monoxide, I think, is an instructive example. Um, we haven't talked a lot about that one yet, but uh, in 5% of Californian homes, carbon monoxide levels were exceeding uh, an 8 and 12 hour exposure limit, meaning that, you know, you're not supposed to be exposed to that for more than eight hours. Um, if our carbon monoxide gets super high in our homes, uh, we do have alarms for that in Oregon, but those are for like the, you need to get out of the house now level, not the, you know, you should be concerned about the long-term exposure of this level. And other gas appliances are better vented than natural gas stoves. Um, so I think they're a little bit less concerning, but they can still have malfunctions that cause high amounts of carbon monoxide. And even if we were to have like, let's say we lived in a world where gas stoves and all these appliances could be perfectly vented outdoors, which I will note, they are not, and we can get into that, we would still be moving all this pollution outside. And, and then we would just be breathing it in outdoors. So we are not taking care of the problem by adequately venting things and adequately venting these appliances. We're just moving it. I would also like to mention the risks associated with the extraction and distribution of gas. You know, there's a whole lot that goes into, for when the extraction of fracking, there's a lot of chemicals involved that seep into 
um, nearby soil and waterways, and a lot of people are affected by that. Also, the laying of pipelines to distribute the gas, there's a lot of issues around that, whether it be just the location of the pipelines or the risk of explosions. There's just there's a whole process behind getting gas inside someone's home. What, and I, as you guys were talking, I'm thinking like, what about fireplaces? What about gas fireplaces? Because that's inside your house. So, I mean, it must be much like a stove when you're turning that on. And does it just sit there on? Yeah, I thought a lot about that too. One of my roommates actually has a gas fireplace in her room. Fortunately or unfortunately, um, it was malfunctioning. So, you know, we weren't able to leave a monitor in her room and see what happens when it was turned on. But that's definitely something I've thought a lot more about. And I can tell you that she does not use it. Oh, yeah. I mean, because I'll talk a little bit more about my appliances towards the end of this, but my fireplace, I can see that it's just, it's on like the, there's a light there's a, there's a flame just happening. So that means it's just getting into my house, just sitting there. We, even if I don't turn it on and I, I've turned it on, uh, I've turned it on. Um, but it is just on when it's sitting there. And, you know, this is, this is making me think about something that Paige and I did a couple of months ago. We attended a webinar for a group called We Act, and it's an environmental justice nonprofit in New York City. And this webinar was called Out with Gas, In with Justice. And it was a pilot project in, in a New York City housing authority building in the Bronx. And this is a low-income apartment building. Lots of people of color, low-income folks that are living here. And they focused on the effects of residential cooking um, electrification with the tenants present in their homes. And like I said, this is a huge residential building. And they didn't do this in every single person's apartment because it's you know, it's huge. So the pilot confirmed that decarbonization in residential buildings is the key to healthy homes. So this pilot reported on some of the health impacts of transitioning from gas to induction stoves. And I didn't know what an induction countertop, I didn't know what the difference was. So I had to do a goog and I'm going to tell the folks out there in case they don't know. Induction cooktops are electric as well, but they heat your food in a completely different way. Induction cooktops use copper coils, which create a magnetic current with the pot or pan on top of the surface. Instead of passing the heat along from surface to cookware to food, induction cooktops heat the cookware directly, which sounds pretty cool to me. So this was, they did this with three, uh, they conducted three tests. They did a long, long-term kitchen monitoring, controlled cooking test, and stove usability for focus groups. Those three tests are where they got the data to confirm that decarbonization in is the key to healthy homes. A little different from our study, the induction stoves, they stayed in folks' house for six months. They did this over a course of six months. And I think it's awesome that people were like, yeah, I want to do this for six months. That's a long time. So they had this in their, in their apartments for six months. And when the study was over, everybody had the chance of keeping that stove or having their gas stove returned to them. Nobody wanted their gas stove back. Nice. So do you all think that from the folks that participated in our study, how many of those folks do you think are going to switch from gas to electric? Did they say? I 
think feasibility is in the question. I think people, if they're getting to the time where they have the funds and the capabilities to upgrade their stove, I definitely do think that they would highly consider buying an electric stove, or they would at least pass on the knowledge to say a family or a friend, if they know that they're trying to buy a new stove, they'd be like, hey, maybe you should buy electric because I saw this crazy footage that Beyond Toxics put out about the dangers of gas. But it was mainly about feasibility. I think most people see the danger or want to do the switch, but it is about uh, feasibility. Every single person that we talked to expressed a desire to switch um, as soon as possible. Yeah, That's crazy. Uh, I mean, I would love it to be in my house, but I'm also scared. Like I said, I'm I'm afraid. So can we get it to my house? (laughs) One second. I wanted to say something. This reminded me... um, of a, so a couple things. One thing that I think we often hear, especially from the gas industry, is that gas is more efficient. Induction stoves are actually way more efficient because they directly transfer that heat through that magnetic property. And mm-hmm. fun fact, you can actually put your hand on an induction burner wall on and it will not burn you because it is using that magnet to transfer the heat directly to the pan. So they're also even safer in that facet. And this reminds me of another study that I really, really was interested in when we were doing research for the report. This one study took a group of Californian homes. They took a group of Californian homes, all with gas stoves, and they chose three intervention methods. They measured their cooking beforehand, right, and measured the air pollution in their house. And then they decided to intervene in three different ways. One, some of that, a third of the houses had induction stoves put in instead of gas stoves. Another third had ventilation added to their homes. And another third had air purifiers added to their homes. And then they went back and they measured their cooking again for a few months. And guess what they found? They found that houses with induction burners reduced air pollution the most by far. They found that air purifiers somewhat helped reduce NO2 levels and did reasonably reduce the NO2 pollution. Those that had vents installed saw their air pollution go up. Can you believe that? And there's a few reasons why they think that this might be. One, as, as much as the gas industry, I think, wants you to believe otherwise, vents don't always work. Um, another study found that depending on the vent that you buy and the way it's set up, it can vent as little as 12% of the air pollution created by gas stoves. And some of them, like the ones that you see in like commercial kitchens that are really big and huge and don't fit into your average home, can vent as much as up to 96% um, in the perfect setup. Um, So I think what that study really highlighted is that vents, I don't think, are a great solution to gas stoves and that, you know, replacing them with induction is really the way to go. Not to mention that, you know, Americans don't use their vents when cooking. Um, Another study found that vents were only used in 12% of cooking events, um, meaning that 90% of them aren't used. And we'll talk about, you know, ways to increase safety in your house and vents are one of them, but you've got to use them right. And we'll get into that, I think, in a little bit. Mason, when we're cooking with gas stoves, how much of that, how much of those gas emissions are getting into our food? What's getting into our food? 
I actually never did research on that. Um, I mainly focused on the error effect, but I would certainly be curious. And now that you've asked the question, I'm, I'm going to be doing some Googling and reading some uh, science studies later today. Hop yeah. Hop on the Goog. Yeah, get on the Goog because um, like I said, I'm over here with this gas, everything. And I do use my vent, but before all of this, I was only using my vent to like, if something smelled burning, like if I was burning something on the stove, I'd be like, oh, put my vent on. You're not I wasn't that. putting it on because I was concerned about the gas. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. And when gas appliances are, when they're just sitting there like a gas stove and it's off, just like my fireplace, what's happening? Is it still just, is it on even though it's off? Yeah. So Ardry, I wanted to follow up with your vent theme. First, really quick, that's yeah. the majority of Americans. That is the case that they use their vent is when something's burning or when something's especially pungent. And that's the only time, and we're going to talk about how that's you know not the case for gas stoves and you should be venting as soon as you start and five minutes after you finish cooking. Um, but the second part to that is um, one researcher in California found that up to 0.8% of methane emissions from gas stoves were coming from while they were off and just leaking into the air. So that's gas that you pay for in your utility bill that gets into your house and then substantially contributes to climate change. Methane is currently driving 24% of all climate change. So that one molecule getting into the air is a really big deal. Um, and another study found that, you know, we've heard this story about switching off from coal to natural gas is supposedly reducing our climate impact. But when you look at all the leaked methane that's coming from the fracking process that Alyssa talked about and, you know, getting out from appliances and pipelines, it pretty much erases any reduction in emissions that we've made from switching to coal. And also, researchers at Harvard found 21 different volatile organic compounds that are regulated under the Cleaner Air Act as federally hazardous air pollutants that are regulated outdoors we're leaking from stoves while off. You're freaking me out. Um, so were you guys surprised by any of the data that was found? Were you guys like, wow, this is crazy? I was surprised when I first, we went to Mason's house and we were testing out the FLIR camera. Mm -hmm. And I was very surprised um, just what you can't see with your eye, just how much gas is emitted from the stove. Um, I was also very shocked when after the flow data was analyzed how you know we knew that there would be an increase but some of them doubled and some of them got into that one of them got into that air apocalypse zone i i was shocked as to the magnitude of increase that we that we saw at mason's house it was an air apocalypse no that one we were <laughs> testing the flare camera when we first got it and so that just the image that we saw on the flare camera when we turned on that stove was just incredible. But then when we went to one of the houses that uh, Mason mentioned earlier, that is when we saw the apocalypse. But we couldn't see that data until, you know, like a month after we had collected the data with the flow. So that just really put things into perspective. Do yeah, they, I won't forget the... Air, do they know they're living in an apocalypse? <laughs> they do. <laughs> um, and they want to do something. But I mean, their two options are to, you know, completely renovate to be able to get an electrical outlet that works um, uh, for an induction stove or to pay, I think they were quoted around $20,000 to install a vent, which is just totally unaffordable to them. But um, there are options that they can do in the meantime. Um, you can actually buy like 
little induction burners that you plug in the wall. And, and this person in particular isn't cooking for crowds or anything like that. They're typically just making a small meal for themselves. So that's something they could absolutely do is just buy a plug-in induction burner and completely stop using their gas stove. So they have that option to take those actions to protect their health. But yeah, everyone just, I will not forget the shock of everyone looking into the footage for the first time and just going, whoa, I yeah. are you kidding me? Yeah, my family did. I was like, look at this. And then I told them about the ordinance and they were like, what? You guys are making stuff like that happen? And I said, yeah, Beyond Toxics is busting air. So you guys were in the houses for about 30 minutes, right? During that time, was anybody feeling any effects? Was anybody lightheaded? Was anybody like, uh, my stomach hurts? What was happening when you guys were in there, particularly in that air apocalypse? What was what, what was happening? I, I think, unfortunately, the residents that have those gas stoves are kind of used to it. Because, I mean, I grew up with a gas stove for 11 years when I lived in Las Vegas. But then I moved to Oregon where I have an electric one. But going to those houses, I remember I would leave and just have this kind of weird headache. And I get headaches a lot. So the first one kind of just brushed it off. Then the second day, I was also getting, you know, weird headache and I just felt kind of shortness of breath. And then I thought, oh, I think it's be because of the gas stove. I'm just not used to it anymore. I don't I don't experience the symptoms. And we were doing house after house after house after house. Um, and one of our coworkers um, at Beyond Toxics, Emily Matlock, came along to catch some photos and she does not have a gas stove in her house. And after the first one, she was like, I feel gross. I have shortness of breath. I have a headache. Actually, a month later, we went and used a flow two with um, a reporter from KVAL, a local TV station in Eugene. And all of us in that house were <laughs> lightheaded and, and feeling it and, and went outside and, and did our interviews outside because of it, oh um, just to get the fresh air. This conversation that we're having is, it's so important and it's freaking me out because all my stuff is gas. So. <laughs> I know you guys aren't trying to freak me out, but what are some of the things that folks can do to to uh, limit the amount of negative health impacts besides the the induction burner? What are some of the other things that folks can do? And you said vents don't help. So let's go into that just, just a little bit longer. Kind of, sort of. Their help is limited, but yeah, let's get into it. <laughs> okay. Alyssa, you want to take the first step? Yeah, this is for these are for both of you guys. I mean, so we did look at some vents that did have some sort of effect. Those, of course, were the big industrial ones that have kind of that concaved hood where it just kind of traps the air. And even if it does accumulate for a little bit, it's trapped there, so it'll suck it up. We also talked about, I forget the word for but if you have a window next to your stove as well, that'll help to kind of navigate a lot of the air out. And if you have a fan next to your stove that also assists in pushing that air out of your home, that can help. As Alyssa mentioned, right, there were certain types of hoods that were really effective, and they had sort of a catchment basin below them that they could hold the pollutants in before they were vented out. Ardry, uh, at my house, and I'm, I'm guessing yours, and, and most of everybody's houses don't have a room for those types of industrial hoods. And the problem with that flat hood is it doesn't suck air enough fast enough to get the pollution, and actually the fan just blows the pollution to the side. And this is something that we could see with the FLIR camera footage, and, and you all can go see that by going and checking out beyondtoxics.org. There are some types of vents that only cover the back half of the stove um, and don't cover the front burners. 
So things that people can do is if you have that style of vent is, you know, only use your back burners because it's been proven that they catch pollutants a bit better. Um, as Alyssa said, open a window, um, create an airflow that brings in fresh air while actively pushing that air out. As soon as you start cooking, turn on your vent to its highest setting and don't turn it off until five minutes after you finish cooking or leave it on longer. If you don't have a vent, I recommend getting two box fans and putting one pulling in fresh air from outside and the other pulling out the intoxicated air from indoors and so that you're able to vent your house. I do that way, especially when I have a stove on because I, I got to actually bring a flow to in my house for a month. And what I noticed is that the stove that was just on a different level than, or sorry, my oven, my oven was on a different level than the stove. Um, it just produced a lot more NO2 and a lot more VOCs. And so whenever I have my oven on, I definitely make an effort to increase that ventilation. Ardry, the next option that you mentioned earlier was having air purifiers. Those are pr proven to reduce NO2, and those are especially good in, in winter when you may not want to pull in a ton of cold air from outside. Air purifiers with a carbon and a HEPA filter are proven to reduce the amount of NO2 in your house and help filter some of that air. The, the third option is just avoiding your gas stove as much as possible. Microwave your food. Use your toaster oven. Find ways to avoid using the gas stove. And that's also proven to help. That is making me um, think about a question that I was going to ask earlier, and it slipped my mind. When you were in the folks' homes, was there any difference between the appliances in a newer home, whether that appliance is new or not, or in older homes? Was there a difference? Like, was were you surprised that a newer home had something that was a little bit closer to that apocalypse than an older home. Did that happen? So what I noticed is the biggest factor that when I was looking at the flow data was actually the size of the kitchen. Um, and if you had an open floor plan, um, the NO2 was more effectively diluted because there's a lot of airspace that it can occupy. Whereas that one that reached Airpocalypse was a closed kitchen. It was very small. Um, and I think that was possibly the biggest factor I noticed. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to, you know, the style of vent was a huge one that definitely impacted um, the amount of NO2 in the air. So one of the city councilors we visited had a really fancy new stove. And, you know, in terms of being able to switch over, she was disappointed because she's still paying it off. And so we talked about oh. the difficulty of that. But she actually got an industrial vent, um, mainly for the aesthetics. But it turns out <laughs> it really helps keep the NO2 low in her house. That's awesome. You know, it's so great that we have elected officials that want to participate in the citizen science. We're fortunate um, because it does move um laws and the uh, policies in the right direction. So let's keep on doing that. So this is all super scary. We're not doing this to scare you folks. We want you to be knowledgeable, uh, whether that's moving forward, buying a home or, or whatever. We want you to be knowledgeable in that. Um, like I said, my everything is gas. My stove, my, my, my oven, my fireplace, my furnace, everything is gas, you know, and we rent. And so my next steps and I'm going to have you guys ask me if I've done this yet so that I can be held accountable is to share 
um, the footage that we found and the report with my landlady so that, you know, we're not always going to live in this house. So, you know, she might want to think about the option of switching over to electric before she sells it or what, whatever it is that she wants to do with it. But all my stuff is gas. It's a little, it's a little freaky. Also like to mention that, unfortunately we are exposed to a lot of things every day. I mean, look at SB246, we're trying to get formaldehyde out of cosmetics. You know, formaldehyde is also found in uh, the gas that comes out of your stove. So it is something that, you know, we can try to put policies in place to kind of wean off of fossil fuels and mitigate the impacts, but it's unfortunately one of many. <laughs> I don't know if that maybe makes you feel a little bit better, but it's not, it's not, maybe that doesn't make you feel a little bit better. I was just trying to get to the <laughs> point that it's, you know, it's like you're looking at a gas stove and you're so scared. It's, you know, it's something that we would, you know, are bringing attention to. And I think that attention does need to be brought to it. There are a lot of things that we are exposed to on a daily basis. Yeah. Thank you for saying that because that does make me feel a little bit better. It's not, it's making me not hate my house right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's really difficult to look and, and sit with these, you know, scary parts of life. And mm -hmm. for a lot of people, it's easier to deny that they're a problem. But the wonderful thing about acknowledging a problem is it's the first step to solving it. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So Alyssa, how has your EJ journey made you more passionate or has it made you more passionate about marine biology and the condition of the ocean? Like learning all this stuff from the fellowship that you did when you were in high school to currently right now, like, has it made you be like, yes, I really want to make sure to take care of the ocean? Um, yes, most definitely. I do want to keep working my way towards the ocean. But one of the reasons that I got involved in Beyond Toxics and just environmental justice work right where I'm at is because there are environmental injustices absolutely everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to pay attention to them and I felt a need to pay attention to them. So that's why I got involved in Beyond Toxics. And I've learned that it really is, you know, I got involved just in environmental justice because I've always felt called to the people aspect. Um, I went to school for research, but I realized that a lot of the research is only, you know, half of the problem and half of the solution because we need to look at the people. What are the societal factors influencing um, environmental issues? What are the environmental injustices? And that is something that I will take with me everywhere. I mean, I know that I will be calling Mason Levitt and Neat Punchall to ask, you know, some research questions. I'll be contacting mm -hmm. you. Arjuri Arbery Barabo and Paige Hopkins for some community outreach aspects. I'll be texting Jennifer Isil and Taryn Yazdani for some policy reform and communications with Crystal Abrams and Emily Matlock and websites with John Cascade. I just, I've, that's really the why I got into it because of the people mm -hmm. and a network of people is what's important. And I will take that with me. And hopefully, you know, I'll take it over there to the coast for sure. Yeah. I loved all that name dropping that you were doing. Yeah, just, we awesome. have a small organization, but we do so much and we are just so involved with each other. And, you know, all under our fearless leader over here, Lisa Arkin, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, I love our little closeness and um, the network that we're able to build because we, I, I personally will take that with me um, yeah. everywhere that I go. That's powerful. You, so you're going to be an EJC captain. I hope so. <laughs> that's wonderful and, and mason oh mason since you were last on the show i've personally noticed a huge growth in you and i see you really owning your role i see you owning your role 
with confidence and that makes us all so very proud. And I'm just always happy to talk with you and have you on the show. And I would love to see your card collection and I hope you have a wonderful time abroad. I'm not going to tell everybody where you're going, but I hope you have a wonderful time abroad. And thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you for thank having, you having us, Audrey. Audrey. Yeah. So thank you very much for joining me on the show today. That was a great chat. I appreciate you both taking the time to jibber jabber, as May, as Meat said, when he was coming on the show, he's like, I would love to jibber jabber with you on the show. So thank you for coming and jibber jabbering with me on Why We Do the Work. And again, I am Archery. Thank you so much for listening to Why We Do the Work. And I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.